If you haven't listened to the last three episodes, I highly recommend going back and starting at the beginning of this series because I'm going to continue my conversation today about attachment syndrome and attachment situations. And today I'm getting into the different types of immature parenting. So stay with me. Hello, everyone. This is Meredith with a Y, and I am your host, Meredith Willits. Today we are going to go deep changing lives, and I am giving you the keys to the castle. So if you haven't been listening and you want to start today, I am talking about what I've been going through, understanding and really healing my attachment disorder. And I'm going to be talking from the book, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents by Lindsay C. Gibson. And today I'm kind of diving into the four types of emotionally immature parents. And I was really kind of taken aback when I dove into this chapter. This is going to be chapter four, because you don't really recognize what an immature, emotionally immature person is until you do dive into it. Because you might see the driven parent who takes their kid to every activity or the passive laissez-faire parent who I tend to sometimes be in certain situations as being emotionally immature, but that's actually not the case. So the first type I'm going to talk about here is emotional parents who are run by their feelings swinging between over-involvement and abrupt withdrawal. They're prone to frightening instability and unpredictability. They're overwhelmed by anxiety and they rely on others to stabilize them. And, you know, I've listened to Howard Stern talk about his mother and how she would put a lot of her emotions onto him and really make it his responsibility to make her feel better. And I always found it so fascinating the way he would talk about it because we don't really sometimes appreciate how much pressure that is on a child. And you think you're bonding with your kid, you're sharing with your child, but a lot of times it's just way too much And that puts the kid in a pressure situation, dealing with emotions and dealing with problems and adult situations. And that if they can't deal with those or they don't deal with them in the proper way, that what's the result, right? That mom's in bed or mom doesn't feel well or dad's angry. And so they treat small upsets like the end of the world and see other people as either rescuers or abandoners. And... I never had that type of parenting. My parents really protected me from a lot of their emotions. That doesn't make it good or bad, obviously, from the last three episodes of me talking to the point where my two grandfathers died and I wasn't even taken to the funeral. Like, so there's that overprotection of you can't deal with this, even though, you know, I was in my teens, but there was really no reliance on us outside of good behavior or being quiet or kind of flying under the radar. The second one, and this one, I think I really was shocked by, but it's the driven parents. They're compulsively goal-oriented and super busy. 
They can't stop trying to perfect everything, including other people. Although they rarely pause long enough to have true empathy for their children, they are controlling and interfering when it comes to running their children's lives. And I think that we see this across the board um, in today's life where these kids are overscheduled. And, you know, I, I think that this is a product of the Generation X parenting where we were left to our own devices, like figure out how to study, figure out how to get good grades, ride your bike to your baseball or softball practice. You know, we were left to ourselves to handle emotional, physical, academic issues and I think because we were so left to ourselves to handle any and all problems, that our parenting is exactly the opposite, like true 180 to the other side where we're super involved. We want our kids to touch and learn and be involved with everything. And, you know, we want to make sure they're getting the good grades and have all the opportunities because so many of us didn't because our parents were just kind of detached from raising us. And and so these are parents that are doers, but not necessarily connecting with their kids. They're getting them to the practices. They're signing them up for the French class. They're making sure that they go on every vacation. But when it comes to emotion, there is a disconnect. The third type of emotionally immature parents the book talks about are passive parents, uh, the very laissez-faire mindset and avoid dealing with anything upsetting. They're less obviously harmful than the other types, but have their own negative effects. They readily take a backseat to a dominant mate, even allowing abuse and neglect to occur by looking the other way. They cope by min minimizing problems and acquiescing. I see this in myself. Because of the fact that I have two older children, so I have been a mom for 26 years, and now I have these two younger kids that are 14 and 11 and are highly involved in sports, and I am so detached from my education, you know, it was 30-some years ago, I tend to be the more handle-it-yourself, like... I'll get you there, but I kind of leave it to them and allow my husband to be the more of the driving factor for what they get signed up for and how their grades are and, and things of that. I don't know if it's laziness, probably, you know, just really speaking honestly, like it's kind of like, geez, I've been a mom for 26 years. I'm kind of exhausted. You know, if you don't want to get good grades, that's kind of on you. I give them the ramifications of that. I give them the ramifications for not eating right or making it to practice, which they don't miss. But I do tend to kind of leave it up to them. This also harkens back to where the mom was nice and then the dad beat the hell out of the kids and the mom kind of looked the other way. And so if you're not standing up for your kid and understanding that they're their own individual, just because you're the nice parent doesn't mean you're being nice if you are not paying attention to your child's well-being because of a more dominant partner. So it, it, you know, it can go both ways where you're just looking the other way because maybe you don't have an out or maybe you don't want to get a divorce or you don't want to take the kids to therapy. You don't want to deal with your spouse's bad behavior. And so you just kind of allow, you know, you just allow these things to happen. That is not who I am and not in our family, but 
you can see that that kind of happening in the boomer generation where corporal punishment, physical punishment was of the times. And the more, I mean, if you even look back to the advertising when they used to advertise cocaine and codeine and barbiturates back in the day for, you know, women who were too stressed out. You can see that taking these types of medication to kind of <laughs> numb you out from the world or your daily problems or your family problems, that would make, without a doubt, a passive parent. Um, and then the last one is rejecting parents engage in a range of behaviors that make you wonder why they have a family in the first place. Whether their behavior is mild or severe, they don't enjoy emotional intimacy and clearly don't want to be bothered by children. Their tolerance for other people's needs is practically nil, and their interactions consist of issuing commands, blowing up, or isolating from family life. And this is probably going to be the most obvious. Like this to me is textbook, obvious, emotionally immature parenting where it's all about the parent and how the parent is feeling because the parent cannot self-regulate their emotions. And because they cannot regulate their own emotions, any sort of strife, any sort of dissonance, any sort of commotion or fighting or childish behavior. This goes back to children are to be seen and not heard. This goes back to all of Generation X being kicked out the door in the morning and come back when the streetlights are on because I can't handle you as a parent. I would rather sit inside and do the dishes and be calm than having to deal with an actual child that I have chosen to have and contend with childish behavior. And, you know, th the problem that I see in this is it squashes so much emotion and so much creativity. It squashes what it means to be a child. It squashes what lives inside of every child to express and emote and be and experience because they're constantly being told they're doing it wrong or they're too much or they're annoying they're too loud they're 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 fighting or whatever it is it's like that's a part of you know, when you argue with your siblings, that is a part of your first process of learning how to get along with other people and communicate and work through difficulties. And when you're told that that is not okay, that any form of outwardly emotion or expression is causing the parent a problem, and then like, what? Like you're a five-year-old, you're supposed to act like a five-year-old. And this to me is the biggest crusher of a child because when a child is small, that is when everything is possible. That is when they're becoming and learning to be who they are. And if their parent is incapable of handling their own emotions or their own stressors or their own nervous system so that any little noise or any little kerfluffle in the house is causing them to short circuit or what, right? If you act in such a way that you're causing my emotions to be out of control, 
or I'm going to put you in your room, kick you out of the house, spank you, beat you, ground you, whatever the case is. Unless you are perfect, I cannot deal with you. So let's just kind of settle into that for a minute. Let's just settle into if you are not a good girl or a good boy and behaving at all times quietly and appropriately, which when I say that, I'm really seeing the English method, right? The the European quiet child having, you know, perfect behavior, clothes not getting soiled, etc. What does that do to a kid that your natural self is inappropriate? Your natural way of discovery and expression and being is too much. I mean, I even have a phone case and t-shirt that I sell on my website. It's if I'm too much, go find less. And we've heard this, you know, you may have heard that on social media, but I'm just obsessed with it because of the fact that I remember being, you know, an excited child. I remember having that spark of life in me and feeling inappropriate because I was too much. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. You know, and then we go to school And we're told we're too much. We're told we're inappropriate. We're told that that is not how we should be learning. That's not the right way to learn. That we have to learn by sitting in a chair for seven hours a day, staring at a chalkboard and ingesting information. And then we're supposed to regurgitate that back. And if we can't do it that way, we're inappropriate. We have something wrong with us. We have ADD. We have uh, dyslexia. We're slow learners. No. We just have a different way of learning. The emotional parent. Emotional parents are the most infantile of the four types. So I suppose that there's, I guess, five. They give the impression that they need, or no, sorry, this is an explanation of the emotional parent broken down a little bit more. So this goes back to the first of the four that I was already referencing. The emotional parent are the most infantile of the four types. They give the impression that they need to be watched over and handled carefully. You know, I always imagine this being kind of like that woman from the 1940s who has like a fainting couch and can't handle much stress and is uh, is of a delicate nature, right? Like we see that in our mind's eye. But what's the modern version of that? right? What's the modern version of the overly emotional parent who just can't handle it? And I will tell you that I do find myself sometimes being that way prior, or I had, I should say, prior to understanding this this book because of the fact that I was not regulating myself. I was taking on the emotions of others. I was not well inside of my attachment disorder. And so any other emotions coming from my children was too much. And then it would be to my husband, I'm totally stressed out. I need you to handle this. And I wasn't lying. I wasn't, I wasn't faking it, but now diving into this stuff, Now that I am regulating my emotions and recognizing that I'm having emotions, recognizing that I am anxious, recognizing that I am trying to do it all in my own mind with asking for no help, 
or had been. And now I'm leaning into my husband. I'm leaning into my friend. I'm leaning into my therapist. I am now able to take on my children's emotions without getting stressed out. I have space for them because I have made space inside of my mind and inside of my body for them. Because I am now not trying to figure it out all on my own. The other day I'm laying on the couch with my husband and I said, I'm having a complete stroke out over here. I'm freaking out. And he's like, what's going on? Now, normally I would not have said that. Normally I would not have reached out. I would have sat there watching television, completely suffering. But I said to myself, you know, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what's going through your head. And I said, I'm really worried about this. I'm really stressed out about that. And within one second, he literally talked me off the edge and said, oh, well, this you can blame on me and that's going to be okay. And I'll make a phone call tomorrow and we can handle this together and everything's fine. He wasn't saving me from the situation, but he boiled it down to this is manageable. And I believed him and it made he made it make sense. And so instead of being completely beside myself, I was able to work through it. Now, if that would have happened a month and a half ago, I would have laid on the couch and belabored and belabored and belabored all of those thoughts over and over and over again. Now, let's say, for example, my son or daughter came downstairs and said, are my volleyball shorts clean? Okay, what they would be walking into is me in a complete anxious spiral, right? And now they're bringing me more shit to deal with, more shit to think about. Because I thought I had to handle all this stuff myself. I thought that that that's just the way the world worked. Because in childhood, I was left to deal with shit on my own. I was left to process and understand and make sense of and figure it out on my own. I'm an internalizer. We will get to that. And so I would have just kept going, kept going. And then here comes a kid with a problem. Here comes a kid that wants something. One more thing in my life, right? One more goddamn thing. He or she has no idea. They don't know that I'm freaking out on the couch. I look like I'm casually watching television. Not, not the case. But now that I understand that I tend to internalize everything and think I need to fix it my, on my own, and now that I'm doing the work and recognize, hey, lean into your husband, phone a friend, right? Phone a friend. It's okay. You're allowed to ask for help. That is creating more space at the same time of regulating my nervous system, regulating my emotions so that I have space for my kids. And so these parents, the emotional parents, at the severe end of the spectrum, these parents are quite frankly mentally ill. They may be psychotic or bipolar or have narcissistic or borderline personality disorders. At times, their unbridled emotionality can even result in suicide attempts or physical attacks on others. People are nervous around them because their emotions can escalate so quickly. Regardless of severity, all such parents have difficulty tolerating stress and emotional arousal. They lose their emotional balance and behavioral control in situations, 
mature adults can handle. Of course, substance abuse may make them even more unbalanced and unable to tolerate frustration or distress. And so this was me. This was me where I was taking on so much of the world, all the problems, all the things. This is when you're going to see people or adults that are abusing alcohol because they want, or drugs, because they want to check out of their own damn life because they're taking it on and taking it on and taking it on and trying to figure it out and trying to work through it. And you can't, but we were trained to, but you don't have to, but we were trained to. And so when we have children and they have a problem, boom, short circuit. Short circuit. Many children of such parents learn to subjugate themselves to other people's wishes because they grew up anticipating their parents' stormy emotional weather. They can be overly attentive to other people's feelings and moods, often to their own detriment. This is Meredith 101. This is where you get people that are sensitive, empathic. We can read the room. Why can we read the room? Because we needed to. We were always trying to figure out what was going on in the house. What was everyone's emotional state? Are we in a good mood? Are we in a bad mood? Are we what? Because as as the parent goes, you go because you're the kid and you are at the mercy of the household. You're stuck. You're stuck in it. They're stuck in it. There's no escaping it. Going back to the second parenting, the driven parent, the type that tends to look the most normal. This is what we're seeing in society today. They look very normal. They're always focused on getting things done. Whereas emotional parents are obvious are, are oblivious in their immaturity. Driven parents seem so invested in their child's success that their egocentricism is hard to see. It looks like they're constantly there and doting on their kid. Their whole world is about their kid. But if you look deeper, you can detect the emotional immaturity in these upstanding, responsible people. It shows up in the way they make assumptions about other people, expecting everyone to want and value the same things they do. Their excessive self-focus manifests as conviction that they know what's good for others, right? These are the know-it-all parents. These are the ones that, oh, you're not in French. Your kids aren't in sports. What do they do? Mm, they're not, mm, right? They don't experience self-doubt at a conscious level and prefer to pretend that everything is settled and they already have the answers. Driven parents usually grew up in an emotionally depriving environment. They learn to get by on their own efforts rather than expecting to be nurtured. Whether they mean to or not, driven parents make their children feel evaluated constantly. Think about it. I spend all this money on tutors and this and that and the other. We see this on the sidelines. The overly involved dad who doesn't let the coach coach and doesn't let the kid play because they're so involved at their kid being a success. Why? Why do they do this? Because they see their child as an extension of their ego, right? 
Oh, my kids, they're, yes, they're going off to Harvard. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, prima ballerina. Yes. She's in 10 dance classes. Can you believe it? This kind of excessive oversight often sours children on seeking adult help for anything because they know if they go to an adult for help, they're going to be criticized, judged, and evaluated. As a result, in adulthood, they may resist connecting with potential mentors. I mean, this is this I see as being the biggest problem of today, where the children are an extension of the parent. The parent's ego is really formulated and grows inside of their child's success, be it grades or sports or piano, dance, whatever it is. The child is actually an extension of the parent. The passive parent, number three, aren't angry or pushy like the other three types, but they still have negative effects. They passively acquiesce to dominant personalities and often partner with more intense types who are also immature, which makes sense given that people with similar emotional maturity levels are attracted to one another. See, that's the problem. If you are an emotionally immature person, you're not going to attract someone that is mature. They're not going to want anything to do with you. So you both usually have two knuckleheads marrying and then having kids together. Passive parents are as immature and self-involved as other types, but their easygoing and awful, often playful ways make them much more lovable than the other three types, emotional, driven, or rejecting. They are often the favorite parent and can show some empathy for their children as long as doing so doesn't get in the way of their needs. The child loves his or her time with this parent, but because the child is often filling the parent's need for affirming, attentive companion, it becomes a kind of emotional incest. This kind of relationship is never completely comfortable for the child because it poses the risk of making the other parent jealous. How interesting. Children wisely know not to expect or ask too much help from these parents. While passive parents often enjoy their children, have fun with them, and make them feel special, the children sense that their parents aren't really there for them in any essential way. In their own upbringing, passive parents often learn to stay out of the line of fire, keeping a low profile and subjugating themselves to stronger personalities. As adults, it doesn't occur to them that they have a mission not only to have fun with their own children, but to also protect them. Instead, they go into a kind of trance during the worst times, retreating into themselves or finding other passive ways to weather the storm. I have to tell you that without a doubt, this to me, this all of, I, I, I can't impress upon you enough how much recognizing my own attachment issues has led me to be a better parent. I have more time. I have more emotion. I have more space. I have more energy. I am more aware when I want to retreat that something must be off. Why do I want to retreat? Why do I want to have a glass of wine? Why do I want to be alone? Now, granted, we all want to maybe want a glass of wine and we all maybe want to go be alone, but it's important when you start recognizing these things is something deeper going on here that is making you want to retreat, that's making you want to check out. I'm also recognizing the impact that I have on my children by being in the phone too much, by being in my own mind too much, recognizing asking questions, 
I just saw a video the other day. It was excellent. It was a child psychiatrist or psychologist. And he was talking about the questions that he asks children. And I thought it was fascinating. And it's so easy and so like simple. But the questions that he asked his kids, I was like, those are really great questions for me to ask my kid. And just a few of them were something like, so I asked my kids, what's the hardest thing about being my kid? And fortunately, their their answers weren't too painful, and they both involved food. God help me. You make too healthy a food, or I don't like the food that you make. And I'm like, well, what, what do you want to eat? And Brock said, sushi. I'm like, well, you know, okay, I'm not making sushi every night or ever probably. P.S. And I'm not going to buy sushi because it's ungodly expensive and you're going to get mercury poisoning. But that's what they said. The other question um, off the top of my head was, you know, like, what's your favorite thing to do with your parents? So if you're a parent asking your kid this, you could say, you know, like, what's your favorite thing that you like doing with me? When do you feel most loved by me? When do you feel most separated by me? Like, these are such simple questions, but it really gives you an amazing bird's eye view into the way your kid feels, right? What are some things you don't like about me? What are th- What is the most annoying thing that I do? What makes you feel cared for by me? What makes you feel like I don't care? Like these are really simple questions. And I actually asked my 14-year-old this last, I think it was a year ago. I said, what was, what's the most difficult thing about being you? And she told me. It was a great in into what she was going through at the time, what she was having a struggle with. It got it allowed me to know her on a deeper level outside of the running from sport to sport to school to friend's house, to sleepover, to whatever, you know, and it, it, it's just such an easy question to ask them. And I think also the more that they and you get used to asking these intimate questions and kind of deep diving into what their world looks and feels like, the intimacy connection is made. The bonds are are making on a deeper level. I find it really interesting just to ask questions like this that are open-ended, like, what's your favorite part about being my kid? What's the worst part about being my kid? What's the, what do you like the most about going on vacation? You know, it doesn't matter what it is, but we, we got to ask the questions and then they get used to it. And so do we, they get used to having these maybe difficult, maybe, you know, whatever intimate conversations with us. The rejecting parent seems to have a wall around them. They don't want to spend time with their children and seem happiest if others leave them alone to do what they want. Their children get the feeling the parent would be fine if they didn't exist. These parents' irritated demeanor teaches their children not to approach them. Something one person described as running towards someone only to have the door slammed in her face. Rejecting parents are also the least empathic Of the four types, they often use avoidance of eye contact to signal their distaste for emotional intimacy. Children of rejecting parents come to see themselves as bothers or irritants, causing them to give up easily, whereas more secure children tend to keep making requests or complaining to get what they want. This can have serious ramifications later in life when, as adults, these rejected children find it hard to ask for what they need. Ding, 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 ding. 
I believe that the rejecting parent is literally the pipeline to avoid an attachment, in my opinion, because I have, I feel that. I feel when I pick up the phone to call someone that I am a bother. I feel like I'm always bothering the world. I feel like I am a nuisance or did. I'm getting, I'm getting through it to recognize I'm allowed to take up space. I'm allowed to have a voice. I'm allowed to have an opinion. I think a lot of people that probably are creators on social media probably tend to find that as a safe avenue to express themselves because in intimate settings, they might not be as comfortable taking up that space in other people's lives. It's hard to ask for what I want. Laying on the couch and having all of that stuff going through my head the other Sunday, it would not have dawned on me to take up space in my husband's life by asking him or telling him how I was stressed out. I was supposed to deal with that on my own. That's what my brain tells me. But I know that my brain's not right. I know that... I'm dealing with blocks. I'm dealing with issues and bad programming that said, you need to be quiet and and deal with that shit yourself. But now I know that's not right. If I'm starting to feel anxious, if I'm starting to freak out, if something's going through my head, now I realize, phone a friend. You don't have to deal with this. You had bad programming. You had bad programming. And that's okay. That's okay. This is the thing about this. And I'm sure I'll talk about this in another episode. Because I I find this as being probably one of the most life-changing things that I've ever gone through. And I think it's super important to share this information. But I believe that two things can be right at the same time. And I see this in clients that I talk to in coaching which is, I love my parents, but I also maybe didn't get what I needed from them. I love my parents, but maybe they didn't have all the tools to raise me. I love my parent, but maybe something is still lacking or I had bad programming. I didn't get what I needed, but I still love them. This isn't about blame. This isn't about pointing fingers and say, you know, because every single generation is the result of the generation before them. And we're just now in 2023, in my opinion, finally getting to the place where hitting our kids is not the norm. It's not a normal thing where it's not acceptable to be beating our kids. But our generation and the generation before us and before us, that was very normal. And so we're slowly learning better parenting tactics, better psychology, better tools to raise our children with. And so this isn't about blaming our parents or going back and shoving this book up their ass and say, look what you've done. This is about changing us, breaking breaking these, these broken pieces up and 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 building it back up so that our children have a better a better foundation to parent from because we know more 
And now that we know more, we need to do better. And our kids will be better because of it. I mean, I remember being in school and they were paddling kids. I mean, what? You had to bend over a desk and hold on to the vice principal's desk. And he would get a paddle made out of wood with holes in it and hit kids in the office. What? Very normal. I think sometimes we forget how far we've come with corporal punishment, with 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 everything, honestly. And I, I don't feel like getting into politics, but we have come a far, a far way. A long way, I should say. It feels like there's a lot of negativity in the world, but the fact that hitting kids is not normal anymore, I think we've we're doing great. I think we're doing great. So the idea, if you heard something or, you know, that I'm talking about today that you dealt with as a child, don't call your parents. Don't call them up. I'm telling you. This isn't about telling them how wrong they were. This is about you changing your perspective and how you got to be the way that you are and the changes that you can make as as a human in your life with your kids or your friends or your spouse and being more involved, more intimate, more emotionally mature. I've sent a copy of this book. I you know, here's, here's the Amazon uh, link to buy the book to probably 10 people at this point. None of those people were my parents. You know why? Because that's their journey. That's their journey. And I'm not here to tell anyone. And you know what? To be honest with you, usually when you, you know, unsolicited advice, my dad says, unsolicited advice is seldom taken and often resented. I know I'm here to change my path, to be a better human being, to have more space for people around me because I'm taking up more space in their life instead of short-circuiting instead of isolating and keeping everything to myself that people maybe do good or bad. I'm entering into a space of being more emotionally intimate with the people around me, which means sharing and being vulnerable and saying when I'm scared or worried or nervous or when I don't have it all figured out. And it's okay for me not to have it all figured out. Because a month and a half ago, I thought I had to have it all figured out. I thought I had to be the smartest person in the room. I thought I had to have it all together 24-7 or someone might figure out that I don't have all the answers and that I'm not perfect. And once they figure out that I don't have the answers and I'm not perfect, then they're going to take advantage of me. Then they're going to own me. Then they're going to be here to manipulate me. But when you are around emotionally mature people... They don't do that. They don't take advantage of you. They don't try to control you or manipulate you. They try to help you. And so if you are surrounding yourself with emotionally immature people who do, you know, use whatever you told them against you or try to manipulate you or strong arm you or make you feel bad about yourself, then it's going to be really scary for you to make these changes 
and and not be avoidant, not be anxious because you're surrounding yourself with people who are not very safe. And I'll talk about in the you know next couple of podcasts how to deal with people who aren't going to change that you may still want in your life. You know, maybe your parents are like this and you're making the changes. So now, now what, right? How do you lean into these parents that have no intention of changing, but you don't want to play that role anymore of child? You don't want to play the the par- the child that has to take care of the parents' needs anymore. You don't want to be in a relationship with someone where there is no emotional intimacy. You don't want to be in a relationship with that type of parent, but you're also not here to fix them. How do you do that? So I will be talking about that in the next couple episodes as well, because great, now we know this, right? Now we know there's a problem, but how do we continue to be in relationships if we choose to with people who have no intentions of of growing? Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes of this series, I highly recommend going back. I lost my mind a couple of times on a few of them. It's been a very emotional uh, situation going through all this, but I hope you enjoyed. If you know someone who might uh, benefit from this episode, please send it to them. If you haven't left a review or stars or anything at the in the space where you listen to this podcast, please do so. That helps me out a ton, ton, ton. Um, and share with a friend. So thanks so much for being here and I'll see you guys here next week. Thanks, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect on a more personal level, head over to MeredithWillits.com or on Instagram at Meredith with a Y for behind-the-scene footage and outtakes. Please subscribe and come back each week for more Meredith with a Y. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.